All right, First uh, Kings 6. Um, here's what we're doing. We've been doing this series called Prophets and Kings. Our hope is this. Our hope is not just to look at the Old Testament as like, oh, that's, you know, for them then. Our hope is to read it through the, through the lens of Jesus. We're told in John 5, 39 that when you read the scriptures, Jesus said, when you read the scriptures, they testify of me. There's something about going through the word of God where you go, how do we see Jesus? How do we see him in these passages? We know that, you know, Jesus is the substance. We see the Old Testament, the prophets or Torah. We see this idea of like, this is the shadow, Christ is the reality. So we want to see Jesus. And how does that relate to us today? How does that speak to us today? Uh, if you're with us last week, we looked at a very well-known, famous story, 1 Kings 3, where God shows up to Solomon. And he's like, Solomon asks, what do you want? What do you need? And Solomon's like, I just want wisdom, a discerning mind and heart to lead your people. And God's like, yes, because you ask for that, it will be given. And I'll not only give you that, but that and much more. And we kind of looked at the idea of James 1 said this. It says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God and God gives to all liberally and freely without reproach, but let him ask in faith. There's something about God saying, I want to give you wisdom, but you must ask me in faith for it. I want to give you wisdom, but as we looked at last week, wisdom is like treasure in a mountain that you must work for. You must dig it out to get treasure out. It takes a lot of effort. It takes some blood, some sweat, some tears. So wisdom is both given and worked for and mined. And so we're looking, really this idea of David just passed away in 1 Kings 1. Now you see the kingdom handed over to Solomon. We saw him ask for wisdom. He's like, if I'm going to do this, God, I can't do this without you. I need you to be here. And we asked you on social media again to read chapter 4 and 5 to catch up for chapter 6 today. And, and here's kind of why. Um, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, it's really the preparations of just the building of the temple. A lot of details around that. How they got some of the supplies and what they're doing. They're executing this now. We're going to read in chapter 6 how they finished building the temple. This is a big deal. I mean, this is like the idea of like hundreds of years of waiting since the time of Moses for not having just a tabernacle that they can set up and tear down, but a temporary place where, God, you can meet us, that this is beautiful, it's glorious, it's something they've been looking and longing for. So we're told really in this passage, just it's more of the details. And here's what I want to do today, because as we kind of work through some of these chapters in Kings, you're like, I'm kind of going to get lost in like who gave what and how much did they give. Um, here's what I want us to see. There's a lot of crossover between the temple, the Old Testament temple, and the church. There's a lot of crossover, there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, actually, that Peter and Paul both pull from. They kind of look at the temple and say, look at the foundation. Uh, look at the cornerstone. Look at the temple itself, how it all speaks of Jesus or us and our role. So I want to do that. As we're kind of seeing today, the temple being finished, being built, we'll see in chapter 8, they'll bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, but the temple itself is done. It's, it's built. And I want to see kind of like this symbolism or the imagery of how that speaks to us today. So the title today is simply this, I'm building God's house, building God's house. That's what Solomon's doing. In many ways, that's what we're doing. We're trying to build God's kingdom, build God's house. You are the body of Christ. You're, you're the place where God dwells. How do we build up the body? How do we build this well? How do we do it well? So I want to look at that more in depth. So why don't we do this? First Kings chapter 6. We'll kind of just read some details through verse 14. But let's do that. First Kings chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. You guys ready? Yeah? Okay. And then just actually, let's back it up. I want to see chapter 5, verse 17. Check this out. First Kings chapter 5, verse 17. We'll, we'll pick up there and then read uh, chapter 6. He says, chapter 5, verse 17. At the king's command, so Solomon's command, they quarried out great and costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders 
and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Verse 1, chapter 6. In the four in the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, that puts us at about 966 BC, uh, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So he began to build. The house that, was King Sol- the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the, the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets to, on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. Verse 7, when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. That's interesting. Verse 8, the entrance for the lowest story was on the the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. God says, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Really quick again. We might not see the significance of this or feel the weight of it, but it's finally done. The temple where God dwells is finally built. We'll see the dedication ceremony in chapter 8. Chapter 7, David builds his own house. But you see it's finally built. And this idea that God is building a house, and we get to be a part of it. And I want us to look at it from that that vantage point today. God is doing something. God is building. Jesus is building his church. We want to be a part of that. Yes? Amen. Why don't we just pray and just kind of give this time to the Lord. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that we can come here. We can open up this book freely. God, I, I do ask that you would just rest on us, that you'd fall on us, that we'd not just read this, Um, But Jesus, we would see you in it. We would see your role. We'd see our role, what you've called us to do. God, that you you commanded and and they obeyed. Lord, I ask that we would just still obey. That you've told us to build your kingdom. You've sent us out. And so Jesus, help us just to to look at this and and see you and to grow in this. And God, I just thank you for those who may be frustrated or angry or bitter or resentful towards the church. Maybe been hurt by the church. That Jesus, you wouldn't do that. That, it, you, that they would see that they are the bride of Christ, that you are building something beautiful, yes, flawed, but beautiful. And so we just ask that we'd find that role, our role in that, that we not be bitter at that, but that we'd join you in the work, God. So we just want to say thank you. We love you. We need you. Um, we ask that you would speak in your name. Amen. All right, so it's not what it was. The temple is not the tabernacle. Similar, but it's different. It's not what it was. 
uh, you know, two Sundays ago after our five-year anniversary. That was a beautiful day. Two Sundays ago, awesome, but I was wiped. So we were tired. Uh, we had family in town. I think it was later that night. We went out to eat, and it was just fun. We're like reflecting on the five years and all that God has done, and it's so sweet. That's, again, that's two weeks ago, and um, we played a little video for you guys, kind of showing just like the last five years as best we could, and we were just talking about it, laughing about it, and, and my wife, you know, it's just me and my wife, and it's her sister and my brother-in-law, and we're talking. She's like, man, when that video played, I didn't even recognize you to me. I'm like, huh? She's like, you're just, look so different. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you just look so thin, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah. You know? Put on a few pounds, I guess. She's like, no, like, did you see her neck? Like, you look really thin. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I hear you. No, she's like, I don't think you get it. I'm like, I get it. Okay, I get it. Like, three times. And they're, like, laughing at me, but I'm like, I, I totally get it. I, when I watch the video, I'm like, whose neck is that? That is, it's true. Different person. It's not what it was. It's not what it was. My, in this case, is a downgrade, but in this case, it seems to be an upgrade. H- here's the idea. The temple is not the tabernacle, very similar, but, but different. You know, you see David's, or you see the, the tabernacle that was built that followed the nation of Israel around the wilderness that David brought in. The, it, was, it was just different. It was beautiful. It was designed by God, given by God, but it was just different. You know, Solomon, when he builds out his temple, we actually see that he had not one candlestick or one menorah. If you know this, that in the holy place, there is a, a menorah or a candlestick. Solomon, so extravagant, he threw in 10, right? And it's fun to like, actually, if you like look up Solomon's temple and you want to see pictures, like what was this like and how beautiful? I mean, it was glorious. There's one author who tried to do the math because you can kind of read all of the supplies it took to build this, all the gold that went into the temple. It actually tells you the talents or the weight. So there was one author in 1980 who put together the cost. He goes, this, this in 1980 would cost about $240 billion. So one author said, that's then, 1980. I don't know, is that a trillion today? I have no idea with inflation. But the idea was like, man, this was glorious. 10 menorahs. Actually, if you go to Israel today, there's something called the Temple Institute. And they're trying to actually put together some of the articles that would go in the new temple that they want to build one day, hopefully, in their mind. But there's this golden menorah you can see, six feet tall. It's in the, the Jewish quarter of the city of Jerusalem. And you see it, and it's behind like bulletproof glass. From my understanding, it's about like three to five million dollars just worth of gold. It's, it's incredible. Just a six feet tall menorah, right? Solomon's like, I'll get 10, not one. This is insane. I'm in a glorious house. Something that his dad always wanted to see. Like this was David's dream that he passed on to his son as we looked at a couple weeks ago, but it's such a beautiful thing. David actually said this in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, David wrote one thing, listen, one thing that I have desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want you to hear that. This is not just a temple. This is not just another place. This is essentially an extension from heaven to earth. The temple is a big deal. We know that God is omnipresent. We know that God dwells in heaven, but God dwells with us and among us. But there was something different about the temple where it's like God's glory, literally like where he communed or met with man seemed to be in this place, in the Holy of Holies above the ark, his kabod, his glory. David's like, there's one thing I just desired, that I may know the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, to, to be in his temple, to seek him, to search him, to know him. I don't want to move on from this too much because my, my hope is, we might read this as like, oh, so cool. First, you know, First Kings 6, is that really relevant today? That the desire was like, I just want to know the Lord. I just want to behold the Lord. A part of why we come here in, in some ways, and Brandon kind of prayed it, it's just I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. That all of heaven right now, right, is gathered around the lamb who is slain. You see the elders, as Brandon mentioned, throwing down their crowns. You see the, crowns. You see the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Like they're beholding the beauty. And David's like, I want that. I want where that place where heaven meets earth. And it's such a beautiful thing. Obviously, and I, I want to get to this, but it's such a different dynamic for us in this new covenant. 
because we don't go to a specific place. Actually, God's like, I can meet you and dwell in you, and heaven meets earth is in you. Like, what? Unbelievable thought. Heaven wants to meet earth in you. God dwells in you. There's something so beautiful about this. But here's the idea. David's desire to build this temple, Solomon fulfills it. We just read in verse 14, he finished it. He finished building the temple. He's going to bring some articles into the temple, but he, fi- he finally finished it here. So here's what I want to see, because um, again, as I was like reading through this, praying through this, reading through these chapters, a lot of details, you're like, okay, what are we, what's happening here, Lord? There's a few themes that New Testament authors pick up on, and I believe point us to about the temple that I want to point out today. And it, here's the first three things, there's three things. One is the foundation, the next thing is the cornerstone, the third is just the temple so it, itself. So like the house of God, you see the foundation, the cornerstone, this, the temple. This, like, this imagery that we see in the Old Testament that's really picked up on the New Testament. So let's just kind of break this down, first of all. The foundation. Notice there is incredible detail given to the foundation. If you look at chapter 5, verse 17, we'll put it up here, the verse again, just so you can see it. It says, at the king's command, which is beautiful, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. At the king's command, they quarried out great and costly stones. Um, you can actually, in Israel today, there's a quarry that it's believed is underneath Damascus Gate, goes all the way kind of into um, the area of Golgotha, the place of the school, believer Jesus was crucified. But there's a quarry that distance and much of it underground. They actually like, hold concerts in these quarries, like underground, like in a cave, kind of cool. But they're digging out these just great and costly stones. This idea that he's like, hey, the king's like, build, they go, let's build. Let's get the foundation. The idea is this, obviously. The foundation matters. Without a strong foundation, it's unsustainable. You can't build on something with a weak foundation. This is incredibly important. We know this, right? I think one of the most famous structures ever is like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. You guys know that, right? Like the idea, like actually I think it's like around 1146 or something um, when the architect, I'm going to write it down, like Bonanno, Bonanno Pisa. I don't know. Um, but the, ar- the architect, within five years as they built the second story on top of it, they noticed it started to lean, right? And you kind of see like famously and it's there and we've had to like reinforce it to this day. I think in the 90s we had to reinforce it. But the idea that actually what they found out was, oh, the ground and the foundation itself was unsustainable. It wasn't settling very, very well. You, you saw it's just a, it's a mixed foundation. The foundation matters. Obviously, what you and I build on matters. The temple being built on these great and costly stones. Notice those adjectives. Great and costly stones. And we see that ultimately Jesus is the foundation, and he is great, and there's a cost. What I want to point out is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul picks up, I do believe, off this imagery of the foundation, of the temple, and of the foundation of the church. So stay with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll put the verse up here, verse 11. It says, uh, uh, yes, verse 11. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, notice that, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take, he- take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. First of all, he's saying there's no other foundation other than Jesus. Jesus is that foundation. He's the great and costly stone. He's the foundation upon which we build upon. And he goes, I like a, a skilled master builder. I just think when you're reading 1 Kings 4, 5, and 6, you're seeing these skilled master builders building, cutting out this rock. And, and Paul's going, that's kind of what I'm doing. Like I would, as a great skilled master builder, I'm building, but I'm building on something that's better, a great and costly foundation. The foundation is Jesus. Let me just put it this way. You know this, but Jesus is the foundation of the church. Jesus is why we're here. This is the whole point. 
that, that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the law, before the prophets, Jesus. The reason why we gather together is Jesus. That's why we're here. This is our first value as a church is we elevate Jesus. The whole point is just saying, I mean, we, this is, again, why we exist. We're created by him and for him. The whole point of this is not so you can come here, Josiah, so you can kind of meet some people and leave. We're here because of Jesus, for Jesus, to know Jesus. You're saved by Jesus. You're loved by Jesus. We get the privilege to worship Jesus. He's the foundation. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus is having a beautiful conversation with his disciples. And he says, you know, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? Peter finally got something right in his life and goes, well, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was like, rightly so, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And then Jesus said to Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. We have the verses up here because I want you to see this. Jesus is like, who am I? The most important question in life, I truly do believe with all of my heart is who is Jesus? The most important question you can be asked the most important question anyone can ever be faced is, what do you do with Jesus? How do you define Jesus? Because everyone defines Jesus a certain way. Jesus is like, who do men say that I am? Like, oh, John the Baptist, a prophet, someone. And he's like, well, who do you? Who do you? Peter's like, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, by the way, I know there's like speculation between the Catholic Church and Protestants. Like, they're like, Peter's the rock on which we build. Like, the first pope, the rock. Uh, Peter's a failure. The rock, the rock is the statement. On this rock, What rock? the rock of what you just claimed, the rock of the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. The church is built on that. If church becomes anything else besides that, we're missing the point. It's very difficult today. I get it. There's so many beautiful things we have to fight for. There's certain things God has called us to. Like we have to be about the work of God, the mission of God, reaching lost people. Absolutely. Giving our resources to helping that, to growing people, to, to you know, orphanage. Like we have to give and do and be a part. But we cannot, like, there's so many things, there's so many great organizations that do, but this is different. This is built on Jesus, where Jesus is the foundation. He's the center point. It, it, we're theocentric. We're, we're God-centered. We're saying we're built on Jesus. This is why every, basically, cult kind of does something different with Jesus. This is why every cult attacks the person of Jesus. They lessen Jesus, right? Mormons like, Jesus and Satan, they're, yeah, brothers. Like, no. <laughs> we're Jehovah's Witnesses. and like, no, he's like Michael the Archangel, his created being. No. This is why you see this, and it's not just that. It comes in so many different forms. If you maybe meet people and you're like, what is going on? It's like, how do we lessen Jesus? And Jesus says, no, the rock, the most important thing the church is built on is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's God in the flesh. He's God who came and walked among us. He's the temple who came, the temple who dwelt among us. Unbelievable. The, the point of this is just saying we ha Jesus is, has to be central for our church, for every church. We don't want to get sidetracked. I hope that every week, no matter what text, what we're doing, what we're going through, you're like, Jesus was elevated. Jesus was lifted up. Because as Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. And there's such an important focus for us to have on Jesus. And it's very easy to get sidetracked. I get it. There's so many conversations and topics like, why aren't you speaking of that? Why aren't you doing that? Great, because I need to elevate Jesus. Because if I elevate Jesus, he'll bring all people to himself. And there's just something about Jesus that we, ha we have to focus on. He's a name above all names. We know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether it's here, on the earth, or under the earth. Everyone will sooner or later confess with their tongue, Jesus is Lord. I encourage you to do it here. There's something about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion on Jesus. Why is that? And I would say, consider maybe he is the Lord. <laughs> maybe he is who we claim to be. I would say we, we have to focus on the person. He is, look at, again, that verse in 1 Corinthians 3.11. He says, no, other, no foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. He is, absolutely. Yes, 
Amen? Now, here's what it talks about. We, how we build on that foundation matters. Let's talk about building on that foundation, right? I did read this a couple weeks ago, but it's just so worth pointing out. Building on the foundation of Jesus does matter. He's the foundation. And you see the church is trying to like build. They're like, what are you building with? How are you building? So Paul takes off this, continues this analogy of Jesus being the foundation. We'll put the verse up, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. All right, so there's a warning to us. He's like, Jesus is the foundation. Everyone's building on that foundation. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, he's the foundation. Take heed how you build. He's assuming you're building. But how are you building? With what are you building? So again, I want to put the verses up because just so see the big context. Chapter 3, verse 12. We'll put the verses up here. This is what Paul says. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of who? Who's the foundation? Jesus. If you build on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or conversely, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Just stop for a second. Everyone's building on the foundation of Jesus. He's like, how are you building? Either wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones. Either you're building with things that will eventually be consumed and fade away, or things that were fire will not consume it immediately. Wood, hay, straw, fire consumes it immediately. Gold, silver, precious stones, fire, it more purifies it. This idea is like you're, bu- you're building on the foundation of Jesus, but with what? The idea is like, obviously, one is simple. idea is like, give God your best. You could sit, put it that way. Like, if you're going to give, like, don't give God your leftovers, whether that's your time, energy, resources, like give God your best. Build with things that actually like, have an eternal perspective, not things that fade away, not things that can dissipate, but build with things that can keep going. Like, what can we bring to heaven? People. All right, let's do that. Let's build into people. That's the idea. I don't know. There's a cheesy story. I'm just going to use it. It's a cheesy Christian story I read. I'm like, this is great because I like cheesy stories, Christian things. Uh, there's a very wealthy guy who's about to die. He's dressed in a tux and he looks at his wife and says, wife, I'm going to die. Take, all, take, take our gold, the gold that we have, stash away, take it. I want you to bury it in my pockets. I want to die with it on me. All right? So he dies. He wakes up. He's in heaven. He fills his pockets. He goes, oh my gosh, I have it. It's with me. It's gold. I can't, I can't, they say you can't take it with you. <laughs> They're wrong. You can take it with you. He goes to Peter. And he's like, Peter, look what I got. Peter's like, what are you doing with the asphalt in your pockets? I love that story. Gold. Anyways, it's nothing. The things that we value, right? Because you get the streets of gold. Anyways, all right. Sorry. I thought it was a great story. Um, <laughs> it's a cheesy thing I had to read. But I love that. It's like, man, we care about things, obviously, that just fade away. There's nothing wrong, again, with pursuing passions. But are we at least primarily making Jesus Christ preeminent and building on him. Is, is, he, is he the one who said, you know, Jesus, you're building your church. I get to be part of this. Thank you. You have a role for me. He has a role for you. That's why we do this. Discover that. Play into that. Give yourself to that. God's like, I've not just called you to live your life for you. You get to be part of something so much better. Because everything you, there's so many people who've gone before us. We don't know their names. They left their things behind. We don't know even what that is. You'll come and you'll go but you can leave an eternal mark by investing in the heavenly things. This is the idea of building on that foundation. Yeah, this idea when he says, you know, their works will be revealed by fire, and like the idea like they'll suffer loss, but they're saved as through fire. I like how one author put it. If you're like, what does that mean? So if you don't build with gold, hay, or gold, silver, and precious stones, like do you go to hell because you're, but no, he says, no, you're saved, but you know, as through fire, you suffer loss. So here's what one author said. I like this. He says, our presence in the kingdom of God is guaranteed by the promise of God, but our position in the kingdom of God will be earned or lost by the quality of service we render here and now. You're like, what? 
our presence in the kingdom of God is not based off us. It's Jesus, what he did. Our presence is guaranteed because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But he's saying, obviously, there seems to be, they don't view the, the judgment of God as like, okay, I'm going to judge you to hell. View the judgment of God as like an award ceremony. Did you win an award or not? The positions, yes, you're in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. But what kind of reward? That's what Paul is using in the greater context. He's basically just build with this heavenly mindset. Jesus is the foundation. Don't throw it away with wood, hay, straw. Build with things that matter. First and foremost, the foundation was great and costly. I want to see this. Paul picks up on that image and he goes, hey, Jesus, he's great. And there was a cost. There was a, a cost. The cost was his blood. The cost was great. For you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. God's like, I love you so much. I'm going to redeem you with the most precious thing in the universe, the eternal blood of Jesus. There's a cost. He is the foundation. Yes, he's the foundation. Not only that, Jesus talks about how we build on that foundation. I just want to end with this verse and just kind of end it for this point. Here's, here's the verse. You know this. It's Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching one of the most well-known sermons ever, and he ends his sermon by saying this. And you guys know this. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Build on the rock. Build on the rock. Jesus is the rock. Build on it, not on sand. Build your life on something that is unshakable, that is immovable. Build your life on Jesus. Everything else is sand. All other ground is seeking sand. Just build your life on Jesus. Number one, the foundation is Jesus. Number two, Jesus is not just the foundation, but Paul and other authors, Peter, pick up on the same thing. And he's like, he's not just the foundation, but he's the cornerstone. Everyone say cornerstone. Or the capstone. Now, here's the idea. Maybe you've heard this or you're aware of this. This is fascinating. Um, There's an old kind of Jewish tradition, and here's the simple idea, that when Solomon had them actually building out this quarry, remember the rocks were built uh, and designed away from the temple, outside of the city, essentially. And they're building these rocks, and they're they're fitting them on on top of each other. Uh, Some of these rocks, as you know, were about 80 tons. And the question of, like, how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? Same question applies here. How did they build this? Not really sure. But these rocks are massive, 80 tons, huge, right? And they're building this outside. And there's this old kind of ancient oral tradition of as they're building up all the rocks for the temple, there was the cornerstone or the last stone, the capstone. There was this cornerstone that they kind of built up and designed in such a way where when they saw it, they're like, what stone is this? This doesn't fit our plans. Let's set it aside. As they're building out and digging out more rocks and fitting things aside, they come to like the temple's almost built and they're going, oh, the temple's built, but we're missing a stone. It's like, where's that stone? It's like, I don't know. Where's that stone? They go back to the quarry and basically they find this cornerstone, this capstone, kind of like surrounded by weeds. Like, this is the cornerstone that we thought meant nothing. This is the cornerstone we rejected because it didn't look like it fit. And the Psalms pick up on this idea, and I do believe it's not just an oral tradition. I believe it's true because in Psalm 118, we'll put the verse up here. It's fascinating. Psalm 118, the author says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, here, you're like, what does this mean? Let me just point this out. Jesus actually quotes Psalm 118 in Matthew 21. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he's like, he's like I, I want to remind you of Psalm 118. I want to remind you how the temple is being built and what you thought was not necessary was so necessary for this to be finished. And so in Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, we'll put the verse up here, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes Psalm 118. 
Therefore, and I love Jesus' commentary. Here's his commentary. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I'm like, huh? Okay, let's just, Jesus is like, hey, you remember that, that psalm we all know? This stone that the builders rejected? It actually became the chief cornerstone, the main thing, the last one, the thing that held it all together. He goes, that's me. I'm the stone you look at and you go, there's no way this guy, Jesus, is Messiah. The Messiah is not going to come in this way. The one you're rejecting, that's the chief cornerstone. He's basically saying, Pharisees, the problem you're doing right now of rejecting this, because I I don't look like I fit. This is the same issue they had years ago building the temple. Jesus doesn't always look like he'll fit. It doesn't always make sense. It's like, Jesus? If you talk to a Jewish person today, it's like, like, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why? Well, there's no shalom. There's no peace. That's one of the main go-to arguments for them. No, there's no peace. The Messiah is supposed to usher in peace. I know, it doesn't look like he fits. What we rejected, though, when you actually look at him, he's what holds it all together. He makes it fit. The same issue they had in Solomon's day of rejecting the cornerstone, the capstone, the thing that holds it together, is the same issue they had with Jesus. This stone doesn't look like it should fit here. The idea is we still do this today. The person of Jesus doesn't always fit. Doesn't, he doesn't fit our narrative on life. He doesn't fit our dreams, our visions, our ambitions. So no, we do. I don't like this Jesus. I'm going to put him aside. But the idea is if you put him in that spot, he'll hold all of your life together. If you put him in his rightful place, watch him make everything else will make sense. But we go, I don't want Jesus, man. Jesus is just in the way to kind of get in the way of my, my, my thing, what I want. Okay. Then why, you'll always feel like your work or life is unfinished. You'll always feel like, why am I have this giant void? Because you're missing the cornerstone. You're missing the capstone. You're missing the thing that will hold it together. This is Jesus' words. He's like, you're, you're doing the same thing. And you know what? Either you fall on that stone and realize it's him, or the stone falls on you and you're crushed. <laughs> Either you fall on the stone, and like this, I've seen people like, oh my gosh, how come I, I've missed it? Years of, of maybe not knowing this, and years of not giving Jesus his rightful place in my life. And I'm like, hey, luckily you fell on the stone. Luckily the stone didn't fall on you. <laughs> might have hurt. might have been painful a little bit. It's better to fall on the stone than have the stone fall on you. You realize it, thankfully. But the point of this is just going, look it. There is this void. There is something missing. The temple is incomplete in my life. It doesn't feel complete. What is that? You're missing the cornerstone. And you have to build on that. See, Peter picks up on the same idea. Listen to this. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll put the verse up here. Peter picks up on the same idea. Psalm 118, Matthew 21. Follow my, this train of thought. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says this. We'll put it up here. Sorry, a lot of verses today. You guys okay with that? It's all right. I want you to see the picture, the imagery. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him, come to who? A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, there is this stone that's been rejected. Jesus is that stone that was rejected then, in a sense, in Solomon's day, with Jesus in his day, in our day. There's a stone that will finally bring completion. And, and I love the analogy. Peter kind of builds off this. He goes, and you two are living stones. You know these stones that made up Solomon's temple? Uh, again, there was no chisel or hammer inside the gates. It's done all outside the quarry. Basically, it's like a giant puzzle they had to figure out before they brought it in. So they had to know, like, okay, it's done outside of the gate. As we bring it in, it has to fit perfectly. It has to come together. There's no mortar. There's no cement. Nothing was used in that. 
It just, they fit perfectly together. They had to smooth each other out. They had to figure this out like, okay, they had to chip away at it outside of the city. This idea of being living stones and God is doing something, like God is chipping away at us. We're living stones, being built up, making this house of God. Like sometimes you don't like it. It's not fun. Stone on top of stone. Someone rubs you the wrong way, right? Some blockhead, some stone jokes. I don't know. But the idea of like, okay, it's not fitting. It's not working. It's chipping. It's painful. But God is trying to do something beautiful. He's trying to put it together. He said, I know it's uncomfortable. Listen, you know this, but um, there will be many times when people in this church will rub you the wrong way. Don't view that as like a curse. Don't view that as like, why would they say that? Why would they do that? I'm out of here. You're living stones built on one another. Be patient with one another. Know that God is working on them like he's working on you. God's not done with you. He's not done with them either. And this idea that God is building a beautiful house. He says living stones built on one another into the spiritual house where you can offer sacrifices. And you're like, what does that even mean? The New Testament talks about the sacrifice of praise or prayer or worship. This, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. My body, all of it's yours. The, the New Testament sacrifices are different. It's my, my lips, my heart, my body, everything. God, it's yours. It's yours. I want to give it to you. But again, in the process of being chipped away in the quarry, the quarry is life. You're being chipped away at. Be patient with one another. Love each other. Don't throw in the towel as soon as someone offends you or says the wrong thing. What is that? It's not the way of Jesus. God is doing something. He's building us up. There has to be patience in that. Listen, Jesus is the foundation, but he's also the cornerstone, the capstone, the thing that holds all of us together. He's that thing that you go, I don't have any, I can sit next to this person, but they might vote differently than me. Yeah, but Jesus is the cornerstone. How cool is that? Jesus holds you together. Doesn't always make sense. Might be painful. Thank you, God, for that. There's this beautiful idea that God dwells in us individually, which we'll get to in a second, but it's even cool that Peter points out, no, he, he dwells in us collectively. That I don't know if we always see it that way. But when we come together, God inhabits the praises of, of his people. There's sometimes people coming together, and it's like, oh, God, this is sweet. It's beautiful. It's John 17. We're one as he and the Father are one. That's beautiful to God. It's glorious to God. Listen, you are part of that. These living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone. You're one of those big old stones. Heavy, hard to move, difficult at times. But when you come together, God is doing something really beautiful. Yes? Amen? He's the, listen, foundation, the cornerstone, the temple itself. Solomon built God's house. And this idea of the temple, there's so much imagery on the temple. So much. But I want to just point out one thing. Chapter 6, verse 14, how does it end? So Solomon built the house and finished it. He built the house. He built the temple for God and finished it. Here's the thing. Write this down. Um, fun fact, right? Solomon wrote two psalms and only two psalms. Solomon wrote Psalm 72 and Solomon wrote Psalm 127. So you look at the psalms. David wrote 70-something and you have Asaph and you have different people. Moses wrote one. Solomon wrote two. And here's how Solomon wrote Psalm 127. I think it has to fit somewhere between chapter 4 and 6, maybe 4 and 8 of Kings. Solomon wrote Psalm 127 verse 1. You know this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Right, we, know that, we know that phrase, but I just think when you read it through context of 1 Kings 6, and all these workers are coming together, and everyone has like, their own job and their own role fulfill, to fulfill. And then verse 14, remember what verse 14 says? It says, Solomon built the house. Solomon's like, oh no. No, you don't. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Solomon's like, first of all, God did this. God can only do this and bring all these people together, make us work together well. The Lord must build the house. If not, we're laboring in vain. God has to be part of this. Now, there's, a, there's this idea that God builds it, but there's also laborers. So the Lord builds a house, but there are labors. But if the Lord's not building, then we're just laboring in vain. That's a scary thought. I don't want to. I don't want to labor in vain. I, I don't want to be like, okay, Lord, like, can you just bless what we're doing here? 
there's this, there's this reality of what we just quoted in Matthew 16. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus is building. How do I join him in that? So how do we as a church come together and say, okay, Lord, what, what are we missing? There are times where like, sometimes it can be critical or cynical and approach. Like, why aren't we doing this? And it's like, okay, like, Lord, help me receive that. But there's times where I need to be like, Lord, what are we not seeing? And when we, if we have a prayer meeting or prayer walk or we're doing something or whatever it might be, it's like our right, small groups are getting together and we're like, maybe we're just, maybe we need to do this. It's like, and if you have a burden for that, like the Holy Spirit might be doing something in you. It's like, yes, give yourself over to that. You feel like the church is not doing that? You're the church. Get to work. I need the Lord to build it though. The Lord is building. We get to join him in that. What is he doing? And I feel like part of our job at times is kind of like, can we hit pause? Like, God, what are you doing? Are you building? You're the one doing this? I don't want to labor in vain here. So Lord, I want you to build the house. Solomon's looking back and look at this temple and going, no, no. It says Solomon built it. Solomon's like, no, no, 613, no, I need to write Psalm 127. And I think he's going, hey, the Lord must build the house. Because if not, we're just laboring in vain here. God must be the one who does this. Another way to put this is, it reminds me of Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Paul writes, hey, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love that because it reminds me of this Psalm 127. It's like, the Lord's doing it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, okay? But it's God who's working in you. Okay, so I'm working out what, he working, what he's working in. Yeah, all right. Work out what he's working in. It's God who's working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Lord's doing it. Let him do it, but join him. Join him in the work. Because if the Lord's not doing it, we're laboring in vain. But it also requires labor. Because if the Lord's, if he is building it, we're also still laboring. But now it's not in vain. And again, one more fun verse with this. Paul picks up on that theme in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You need to do that. Know that. Unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. But if your work is in the Lord, it's not in vain. Okay, so parents, you feel like your work is in vain. No. Do it in the Lord. It's not in vain. People who serve in different areas, obviously, they're not even like here. They're in kids right now, or they're, I don't know, greeting or doing security, whatever. The idea is like, work in the Lord. If you're working in the Lord, it's not in vain. Again, don't ever feel like, but this is not significant. No, no, you're a living stone. You build up the house. The idea is like, you have a role. It's beautiful. It's necessary. And if it's in the Lord, it's not in vain. And that could be loving your neighbor. That could be preaching the gospel to your neighbor. That could be your coworker, praying for them diligently by name, writing things down. Know this. It's not in vain. It's not in vain if it's in the Lord. Paul's saying, be movable. Be, be steadfast. Don't, don't lose heart. It's not in vain. The Lord must build, but we get to join him in this work. Now, here's how I want to end. When I say the temple, Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Jesus is the temple. Jesus said what in John 2? He said, destroy this body, and, or destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? It took us so many years to build this. You'll raise up this temple in three days? And then John's commentary, it's really clear. It's like, no, no. The temple Jesus was referring to was his body. He said, no, destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus is the temple. The idea of, again, the temple is where God meets man. Who's Jesus? God meets man. The temple where heaven comes down. Oh, who's Jesus? Heaven came down. Jesus is that temple. Now, the, the crazy thing that I still don't know if I fully grasp, Jesus is the temple, his body. Destroy this, three days I'll raise it up. But Jesus ascended to heaven, and he told us, the Holy Spirit will be with you, but he'll also dwell in you. So he's that place, he's the temple where heaven came to earth. And he's like, now you're going to all be mini temples where heaven comes to earth through you. I don't know if I fully get this yet still. This idea where like, God, you used to meet man in this place, in this Solomon's temple. Your glory was there. Ezekiel looks back and actually when they're being held off in captivity, he sees the glory leave. That's another story. But your glory met with man there. Your glory came down through the person of Jesus. And now your temple is the people, the church. 
that like your glory actually lives and dwells in us? Do you believe this? Do we actually believe that? That we are the temple of God, that God dwells in us. This is said over and over again, right? I mean, you know this, but I'll put the verse up here. Just, I want you to see this clearly. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Don't you know that you're God's temple? Not just Jesus, he's the temple who came down, God among us. But your body now, God dwells in you. Same thing, 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He says, don't mix your life with idols. Why? We're the temple of God, so you can't have other idols there. Here's what I wrote the word ne- naos. If you're like, what is that? Why is that word there? Um, there's actually two Greek words for temple, and that's fascinating to me, and they're actually both used in the New Testament in different contexts. But you have this first word, which is heron. It means temple. It actually means holy place. Then you have the other word naos, which actually literally means the holy of holies. Here's why I think this is so significant. Obviously, Greek, New Testament, understanding the, the like, kind of like the Jewish language of like, there's the holy place, but then there's the holy of holies where God dwelled. Paul doesn't say holy place for you. He says, you are the holy of holies. That is crazy to me. He says, you're the naos. He could have said you're the Aaron. He didn't. He tries to make it really clear. You're not just like the temple where like you do the work for God in the holy place, but that's where they do the work. You're not that. You're naos. You are the holy of holies. Where God's presence dwelled there, now dwells in you. That's unfathomable to me. That's the thing where people freaked out about. The holy, holy of holies? Only one man one day a year can go in, and God's like, yeah, and now that place is in you. I don't know if I fully get this yet. I don't know if you fully get this yet. He goes, don't you know that you are the temple, the naos of the living God? You are the temple. Don't, don't mix your life with idols. He uses it in another context, don't mix your life with prostitutes. He uses all these things. Like, don't mix your life with other things. You are the holy, there's one God. No room for anything else. You are the holy of holies. If you've believed on Jesus and received Jesus, God's spirit now lives and dwells in you, and heaven wants to meet earth through you. It's absolutely outrageous. And you have, there's a side of it where you pray and go, Lord, help me understand the weight of this, the weight of your glory, the weight of heaven coming to earth, how there's these little encounters where you might live life and you come across someone on the street and you're like, God, can heaven meet earth right now? Can you show up powerfully? Can I make myself available to you? As a temple, God, let your glory come and speak to this woman on the street who's homeless and hungry. God, speak. God, move. There's these little moments in life that God will give you where it's like heaven meets earth. And you go, what was that? It's like there's more of that. There's more available. We don't always access it. I don't always access it. I don't always live in that power. But there's something knowing that it's available. And God's spirit lives and dwells in you and goes, I want to create little heaven on earth moments that happens through my vessels. So we all spread out throughout the week and God's like, now have more opportunity throughout the week and then we come together and build these living stones and beautiful thing. So God lives and dwells in us individually, collectively, Peter says. It's unbelievable to me. So Solomon's building the temple. The New Testament picks up on that and goes, look at the foundation, Jesus. <laughs> look at the cornerstone, Jesus. Man, look at the temple, Jesus, the bride. Sunday school answers, by the way, if I ask my son questions, the answer's probably Jesus. Same thing for adults. Hey, what about this? Jesus, okay, you got it right. But that's so beautiful. Because it just always speaks of him. It speaks of him. I want you to see that you are a part of this. Listen, don't view this as like my job, you're someone else's job, whatever. You're, you're the temple of the living God. We're living stones built on one another. Jesus is the thing, he's the cornerstone. He's the one that we rejected, but he's the one that holds us all together. So Peter puts it. We come to him. We need him. We collectively need him. We individually need him. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. God wants to meet you. God wants to meet others through you. Be available to the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes?
know God, believe on him. As many as believe on him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. If you believe on him, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now lives and dwells in you. Just like in faith you call upon Jesus, in faith you receive the gift of the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Believe on him. Yes? I just want to say it's available. Let heaven come to earth through the bride and the body of Christ. Amen? Jesus, we just want to say thank you. That is something I don't fully get. Lord, it's insane when you think about the temple work being done. Because in, in the place of the temple itself, there, there was holiness, there's quietness, there's stillness. And Lord, we just want to be still for a second and say, God, there is no one like you. We are created by you and for you and for your good pleasure. And Jesus, um, you are the foundation. We want you to be the foundation of this church. This is your church. This is not my church. This is your church. Lord, you will build your church. You are the cornerstone. Though we might rub each other the wrong way, we fit together and we're held together by you. Jesus, you are the temple that walked among us, was no longer just held into stone with gold, but you walked among us. And then you tell us now that you're, you dwell in us, that we are now the temple of the living God. We just want to say thank you, God. I don't, I don't know again. Help, help me, God, over time, understand that more, be available more. Pray that for our church here, Jesus, that we'd look to you, we'd build, build on the foundation of you well, not give you the, our leftovers, not give you our least, but Jesus, that we would build on it well with eternal things, things that we can take with us. Jesus, you, you love this world. You want to reach this world. And I ask that we'd be available to you, to your work, that we'd not just be about ourselves and how we can experience you. Lord, yes, we want to experience you, but we want the world to be filled. God, the, all of earth is the temple. All of earth is, is just full of your glory. This is yours. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've called us. Thank you that you want to work among us. You want to walk among us. You want to work in us. And Jesus, I just pray and ask that we would be open to your leading. In your name, amen.